Something extraordinary is playing out just 90 miles off the coast of Florida. The people of Cuba are making their voices heard in ways they've never dared before. Their mantra, patria y vida, country and life. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Earlier this month, we witnessed Cuban citizens in more than 40 cities and towns across the island country take to the street during historic protests against the communist Diaz-Canel regime. I wanted to dive into what these protests mean for the people of Cuba, what actions the U.S. should take to promote freedom for Cubans, and how all of this can impact our politics in Washington, D.C. and Florida. My guest today is Al Cardenas. Al is a nationally recognized Cuban-American leader in law, business, and politics. Al has served in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations as chair of the President's Commission on Small and Minority Business Affairs, as special ambassador to St. Kitts and Nevis, on the board of the Federal National Mortgage Association, and on the President's Trade Policy Commission. The Hill named him one of Washington, D.C.'s top lobbyists. He's also a former chairman of the American Conservative Union and a two-term chairman of the Republican Party of Florida. He's been recognized as one of the most influential people in Florida politics. Al, it's great to see you again, and welcome back to Politicology. Hey, great to be with you, Ron. So why don't we start with some background before we dive into current events? Could you give our listeners some historical context to understand the Cuban regime and U.S.-Cuban relations? Part of it is my personal story. I uh, came to America in 1961 uh, with my mother. They wouldn't let my dad out at first. Uh, He was an expert on uh, the Treasury. He had been a bank chairman. And uh, the government had just taken over literally our monetary system and, and financial institutions. And so my dad was allowed to leave due to some connections we had a year later. And uh, everything that our family owned, uh, both on my dad's side and my mother's side, was confiscated. Uh, some were pretty lucrative businesses, including the distribution of Texaco products throughout the island, uh, homes, farms, you name it. And so uh, we lost everything, came to America so to, to avoid what we knew was a communist regime and the consequences of opposing it. Uh, and, uh, and that was a beating of our story in the United States. When we came, it had been fairly obvious to us that 90 miles from the United States, America was not going to allow Cuba to be a Soviet satellite. Uh, we were already in the midst of uh, conflicts with the Soviet Union. Uh, the Cold War was uh, bearing its ugly head, and we didn't think there's any way the United States was going to consider danger uh, that close to our shores. Well, sure enough, we were right. Uh, the CIA and others began recruiting Cuban Americans, uh, literally in Little Havana. Uh, they were uh, trained at the expense of the United States military, and the Brigade 2506 effort was launched. Uh, in the middle of the launch, uh, President John Kennedy had second thoughts. 
I mean, these are people that already disembarked in Cuba waiting for air support and so forth. And so over a thousand Cuban Americans were killed in the exercise. Uh, many more were jailed. Uh, the United States had to, uh, uh, secure the freedom of these prisoners by giving Castro a lot. Uh, both in financial resources and and equipment and so forth. And so that was the beginning. And because of that beginning, uh, Cubans felt like the United States was always going to be a player. John Kennedy, uh, having had second thoughts, came to Miami, filled the Orange Bowl with Cuban citizens, and promised them a return to freedom and a free Cuba. So this lasted literally five years of uh the four or five years of thinking that any time the United States was going to think of this again. And uh, that was all that was in the minds of Cuban Americans who thought of returning to Cuba sooner rather than later. Uh, as time went on, and then, of course, we had the, uh, uh, you know, the military, the, uh, the nuclear threat uh, when the missile crisis mm-hmm. occurred in the mid-60s. And, uh, early sixties and, uh, and that happened. Many felt that part of negotiations of Russia evacuating its nuclear arsenal, uh, was a commitment by the United States never to invade Cuba. Uh, to this day, and I have personally read, uh, a lot of the declassified documents. It appears that that was a plausible conclusion. I, I can't tell you for sure, but, but it seems like indeed that was on the table when it was negotiated and the uh, Soviet Union took uh, away these these weapons. At the time, Cuban had built a lot of uh, underground uh, shelters expecting, you know, the United States to reciprocate. And so that was built, probably exists to this day. Uh, where the hierarchy can go hide and avoid a serious, uh, uh, you know, airstrike in Cuba. And that the United States has always taken into consideration. So that was that. Uh, Russia, uh, Soviet Union at the time and others financially supported Cuba during these hard times. Uh, Cuba, uh, at that time still had a pretty decent infrastructure, pretty decent uh, uh, economy, which began shrinking as the communist regime, as it will invariably do, uh, showed their incompetence. And uh, so agriculture production kept shrinking uh, and uh, everything else that it did uh, before had uh, begun to... Uh, had begun to deteriorate. A lot of the uh, private sector that was taken over uh, was never able to be kept up by the communist regime, and so that shrunk. So I would say the Cuban GDP shrunk by 50% by the mid-60s, mm. and it's been reduced ever since. Uh, we often say that the uh, less than million Cuban Americans in the U.S. have five or six times the GDP production than the whole island of Cuba does. And uh, wow. just to give you an illustration of how their economy has shrunk. But Cuba, 
even though it, it kept reducing its uh, economy and its GDP and unemployment is in the high 30s, 40s, uh, it, it kind of shrugged along. People learned to sacrifice and live that way. Uh, a lot of, as you know, the Cubans still sought freedom. Many tried to cross the Florida Straits. Uh, the desperation is shown by the uh, the tally. Uh, f- over 50% of those who tried to cross uh, Florida Straits from Cuba in these man-made, uh, you know, barbs and died, never made it. And uh, so, and how do we know? Well, because they brought phone numbers to call. They're supposed to call their family as soon as they got to the States. And a pretty adequate service have been taken to for me to be able to conclude uh, to you uh, that uh, 50% or more was the death rate of these efforts. So you could see the desperation in the crossings when the death rate was that high. So that's the situation in Cuba. Go to the uh, fall of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. And uh, that was called in Cuba the time of need. Uh, and that time of need meant that as, as much misery as it was in Cuba, uh, it just became so much worse. And that was the first time where the public desperately got to the streets. We had demonstrations. We had some, some thousands of people jailed, uh, quite a few hundred killed, if not more, and many more tortured. Uh, after that, when the Chavez regime in Venezuela came, uh, that, uh, you know, supply of oil and other resources, frankly, Cuba would take the oil supply from Venezuela and resell it. And that was part of their mm-hmm. currency, probably became like a fourth, if not more, of their GDP. And so it got a little better than it was during that period of need in the 90s. Uh, but not much. And, uh, and so it's kind of been surviving a bit as Venezuela has crashed economically. Their help, uh, uh is no longer there. China, who, who had lent monies to Cuba, found far more fertile ground in South America, becoming the top trading partner to many of the South American countries. And so Cuba no longer really became a priority for the Chinese. Uh, the, uh, the Soviets are now Russia. It still is. Uh, Vladimir Putin uh, lived with the KGB under the old Soviet Union. He was well familiar with Cuba's situation. And creating unrest in uh, Latin America is much more important to Russia than it is to China, who believes that their conquests can be more effective economically. Russia has nothing to offer economically. So that's that's right. the status of things. But it's gotten so bad that food's no longer available to many. The shelves, even of your rations uh, that are provided to Cubans to get meager uh, ministries of food a month, the shelves in these stores are empty. Uh, there's no clothing. Uh, Cuba boasts of having a, an incredible uh, health care system in terms of the number of doctors. And it's true about the doctors, but the hospitals are, tor- are in a horrible shape. Medicines are not there. The level of health care is lacking. So the current conditions created such misery 
the hottest summer in a Caribbean island in our history. So all of those things put together, the hunger, the despair, the lack of hope, uh, got people to the streets. A lot of uh, folks in the media in America uh, suggested that it was because of a pandemic and not getting vaccines. Uh, that was probably a part of it, but but most of it, it was hunger, despair, people dying at home for lack of medical care. And so they did, knowing that as mm-hmm. the result of these things, a lot of people were going to die and get tortured. Uh, my sense is that more than 500 have died. There are probably a couple of thousand people uh, that have been imprisoned. Uh, there's a lot more pressure on Cuba now than there was in the 90s to stop the mayhem, but we'll see where that goes. And so that that's yeah. a circumstance. Those are the conditions. And so the debate in America is what do we do? So... Help us just briefly understand the difference in what's driving the protests that we're seeing uh, now and the ones that you mentioned in the 90s. And there's been a lot of talk about how the protests, the recent protests, are unprecedented. Do you see them in the same way? And, And how are they different from what happened in the 90s? It is unprecedented in terms of a despair factor. Okay. Uh, the despair is greater than it was in 96. There's a building collapsing every day in Cuba. Imagine infrastructure that has not been uh, t- taken care of for lack of resources. You saw this uh, this last week or two, the collapse of this building in Miami Beach in Surfside. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. imagine that taking place every day in Cuba. Because these buildings are sometimes 100 years old, 80 years old. Many are near the ocean, same corrosion, some same structural challenges. But so you visibly see the collapse of buildings. You visibly see that there's no housing. You've got four generations of people living in a poorly conditioned one-bedroom, uh, you know, apartment. And, uh, and you add to that the heat. You add to that the lack of food, you add to that the lack of health care, and the despair level rises to a point where where there's an explosion. Uh, what uh, the many say that what prompted this uh, new explosion of feelings was a song that was uh, mm. that, that was sung in Cuba by the people who who sing in that reggaeton style, which is. For those who are not familiar with the word, it's kind of rap in Spanish, in Caribbean yeah. Spanish. And yeah. it was about, uh, you know, Cuba and life. You know, Patria y Vida yeah. is the name of it. And that is my fatherland and, lo- and life. That's the, that was a slogan of the rap song. And it really hit. It oh. became so popular and people started talking about it. And in my opinion, that's what ignited these uh street uh, people getting to the streets and expressing their frustration their despair so 
I want to help uh, our listeners understand the the consequences for this kind of protesting in Cuba, you know, compared to the type of freedom we have in America. So last summer, we saw protests around the country in America after the murder of George Floyd. We saw peaceful protesting as a constitutionally protected right in the United States. So I wonder if you can help us understand the, the risks that Cubans take when they protest against the regime and how the Cuban regime operates and treats dissenters. You know, the uh, there was some violence uh, in the United States. It was caused uh, a lot by protesters and anti-protesters that law enforcement couldn't or wouldn't stop. Uh, we did have uh, a number of uh, agitators like Antifa and others participate in the destruction of property. If this had happened in Cuba, I would say we would have had 20,000 people uh, dead. Uh, mm-hmm. as, much, uh, uh, as much as people got to the streets in Cuba, you didn't see people breaking into, you know, buildings that were still standing or or fighting back the police or law enforcement they're frankly just victims of of the violence of of these military operators who don't dress as as law enforcement or military they just carry sticks and break your head and hmm. uh a lot of those broken heads happened. We don't have a count of it. We have a count of those who are missing and imprisoned, which exceeds a thousand. But I'm sure there were thousands of heads and bones broken oh. by these, by these thugs. And, uh, that, that's a price you pay. And we have to be careful in the United States. What do we promise the people? Uh, yeah. for example, uh, when Donald Trump pontified this president in waiting in Guaido yeah. and came to Miami and John Bolton came to Miami. Uh, if you were in Venezuela listening to their words, you were sure that the United States was going to militarily intervene. And so mm-hmm. thousands and thousands got to the streets thinking that between the United States and they're showing this faith and courage, the next step was going to be taken by the United States. And so uh, Senator Rubio and others were hoping that the military in Venezuela uh, would join the dissenters and topple the government. Well, they wouldn't because the top tier of the military was compromised already with corruption and other acts that would result if there was a change in government, uh, they're being sentenced to death or to long jail terms. And so by that time, the military was holding on to dear life. And that uh, was in no mood whether they agreed or didn't agree to do anything to topple uh, the government that was repressive, horrible, but was protecting their own skin. And so in Venezuela, the government literally kid five, six thousand people in the streets. And a lot of that street insurrection uh, came about because they literally hoped the United States was going to intervene based on what they heard from Donald Trump, from John Bolton and from others. And I bring this to the equation because, of course, nothing happened. Uh, the, um, the hopes that the United States was going to do something, uh, died. 
and it died a very tragic death uh, in terms of what a hope should be because at the height of their risk-taking, at the height of their hope and aspirations, the United States simply didn't show up or didn't do anything about it. They sanctioned a couple of people who don't really care about that, and uh, that's it. That's where we're in Venezuela, no further ahead than before all these sacrifices were made. Uh, that's why I urge people in our community who are out there supporting the uh, folks who are risking their lives literally in Cuba, begging for liberty and begging for a better life, to be careful of what we promise. Because if they're out there on their own, and they know they're assuming risks, and there's no expectations from the United States, that's fine. It's very patriotic. It's very courageous. But I do not want this administration to do what the Trump administration did, and that is to create such hub certificates that people, thousands more go to the streets, thousands more of deaths take place, and at the end of the day, the government's going to be that much more repressive. So I I think what the United States is doing, uh, Senator Menendez made some comments, the White House made some comments. I think that's the right tone for now. Uh, Republicans and Democrats both agree that if there's a way to reactivate permanently the Internet in Cuba mm-hmm. so they have access to the truth, uh, that's a significant step forward. Uh, and uh, and that effort is, is underway now. It's very complicated technologically. I mean, they're even talking about having balloons and transmitters yeah. over the island. But I don't, I don't know where that'll go. I'm not smart enough to know what you could do technologically, but I do know there's a serious effort taking place about that. And being able to continue to be informed is a big deal yeah. and, and a big yeah. help. Uh, yeah. the, uh, there's a debate about remittances. Uh, mm-hmm. Those who are very conservative believe that remittances are not a good thing, that uh, it creates a false comfort level on a minority of a population and lessens the likelihood that the Cuban people would take to the streets to topple the government. Uh, there are those who believe that we have no right to demand something that has not taken place in 62 years uh, and keep being a minority or not of people to be able to get food and clothing and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, for one, uh, I'm not against remittances because we have tried to starve the Cuban people, create circumstances that make may have enough pressure within the community, but nothing will happen. Because these uh, dictators like Maduro in Venezuela, Ortega in Nicaragua, uh, Castros and others in Cuba, they live well. They're basically 75, 100 families in each of these countries that live a life of luxury. And they've gotten to the point where they've committed so many atrocities that they're not going anywhere. And their military and, and, and secret operations are so strong and they're so ruthless that it's very difficult to try to topple these regimes without outside intervention. So you ask yourself, what should we do 
that could maybe better the lives of these poor people and uh, without fortifying the government. And it's a tough call because anything you do to send aid to Cuba, you have to send through the government, and the government keeps 90% of it. And so uh, it's, a, it's a difficult environment to be compassionate, to have that compassion reach those in need and not uh, fortify or help uh, the government at hand. You know, we tried through the Barack Obama administration to see if Cuba would move forward like Vietnam or Cambodia or even China, where they have central governments. Uh, they are communists. But by admitting and permitting capital investments and a free enterprise environment, their people are now better fed. You've created a middle class in China, in Vietnam and Cambodia, the same thing. And so Barack Obama tried in good faith to uh, create that environment in Cuba, but the Cuban government wouldn't budge. They're much more like Russia than they are like China in terms of how they, they want to be. There is a very prevalent idea um, that that I that I want to address, which is that the Cuban people are suffering because of the embargo and the and the that is the lack of uh, food available is is as a result of the embargo. But Lillian Guerra, who is a University of Florida professor of Cuban history, she was on NPR last week and she talked about how the food shortages in Cuba weren't actually caused by the embargo, but that they actually come from the fact that the state says it lacks resources. And we've seen, as you mentioned, the Cuban government has a lot of money, right? They invest a lot of money in building hotels and tourist facilities, but they still tax small street vendors more than foreign investors. And I wonder if you can talk about that that dynamic uh, and maybe the misconception that the embargo is the only reason that, that the people are suffering there. Sure. Uh, well, the first thing people need to know is that the embargo does not cover food. So if Cuba wants to buy food from the United States, it can. The only caveat is that they have to buy it in cash, not in credit. Uh, and so that's available, but Cuba doesn't. It, it does some, like buys chicken still and others and, and other food products, but, uh, it, it just lacks cash to buy. But uh, you have to remember that the United Nations has close to 200 countries. All the countries other than Cuba have the capability of free trading with Cuba. The reason why Cuba doesn't do it is because they don't have the resources to trade or purchase. And so that's where the shortcomings come from. Is the embargo with Cuba a wise thing to do? Uh, I don't know. Uh, but I do know that if it wasn't there, n nothing would be different because the uh, Cuba's ability to to buy resources, get resources uh, from the other 200 countries is not impeded in any way. And it can buy foodstuffs from Cuba. Now, can it buy a caterpillar tractor from the United States? No, but it can buy them from China. It could buy them from Italy. It could buy them from other producers. So I don't believe that the embargo is a factor when it comes to Cuba's financial collapse.
We've seen politicians from across the ideological spectrum call for a range of policy options, uh, from lifting the embargo to military action, and you've mentioned a couple of these. Can you help us understand what some of the actual options are on the table for intervention, and what is an attempt to score political points in the U.S.? Cuba is a huge political football in Miami, and most of it, it's mirage because there's a lot of talk and very little that can be done. Uh, Trump uh, did really well with the Cuban community in the elections, surprising Mm -hmm. most. And the reason for that, it was, I mean, it was relentless. Uh, He had uh, not only John Bolton, but others come every two months to Miami and talk a very tough, tough. Uh, They, uh, you know, they stopped remittances. They stopped, uh, you know, they took back the uh, agreements that uh, Barack Obama had entered into, stopped terrorism, and that hard hand uh, was was helpful uh, with mm-hmm. the uh, Cuban community and, and the Cuban American media in Miami. And it got him a much, rather, a much, much larger uh, return in terms of the voting percentage than any of us expected. So now comes Joe Biden, who realizes that he's not going to suffer fools and replicate that uh, strategy. But, you know, a good number of the elected officials, including Senator Rubio, are fueling the flames as to what Biden is not doing that he should do and things of that nature, and trying to keep Joe Biden from reversing some of the things that uh, were instituted during the Trump administration and also accusing, accusing him of being weak. And and this rhetoric of trying to paint Joe Biden weak on Cuba is a big deal for the election cycle. And the Democrats need to not sit back like they did for the presidential election and come out and and be forceful about it and, uh, you know, President Biden did a good job, I thought, pushing back on what Cuba had done. But it's not enough because he'll speak once, but yet every day on Cuban American radio or TV, their local elected officials hammering at how weak Biden is and the Biden administration and calling them socialists and the whole bit. And so I think Robert Menendez and others better step their game up and come here. Uh, we had two Democrats who had been representing us in Congress, but they lost to two Republicans in South Florida. So we have two Republican senators, one Republican governor. The representatives of our community are both Republicans, and that's a lot of firepower. And every one of the people I mentioned have come strong against the Biden administration, trying to verbally create a sense that that he's weak, weak on Cuba, weak. And you say weak on Cuba, that sticks. Doesn't matter what that means or what you can or cannot do, but it's uh, it's an opportunity politically that unfortunately. Uh, you know, dampens the, uh, the, the play. I mean, I, I hope we could be bipartisan in agreeing on solutions that help the Cuban people, but not the Cuban administration and act within the confines of what we can reasonably expect America to do. 
And America is not going to militarily intervene in Cuba. So short of that, can you change the administration in Cuba? Probably not. So assuming those things, what can you do? Well, this Internet thing is a big deal. Making sure that sounds very promising. Yeah. Right. And so that needs to be worked on. That's something that Trump didn't get done, but maybe Biden can and that'll help him some. Uh, the other tough questions and it's on remittances. I for one believe that they should be permitted as long as there are assurances that the assistance will go primarily to the people. You know, if Cuba wants to collect a fee, reasonable fee, five, ten percent, uh, like Western Union does, for example, that's fine, but they shouldn't take ninety percent of what's being mm-hmm. sent. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing that can help a bit. Uh if we can provide uh medicines, uh hospital goods, which many in the exile community don't approve of, but you know, if your if your mother was dying in your living room and you couldn't give her a medicine, you would think otherwise. And so mm-hmm. I, I think critical medicines and things of that nature and healthcare, uh, we should be allowed to give to the people of Cuba. And mm-hmm. uh, those are some things that may or may not be criticized, but at the end, if you do the right thing, most of the time it'll work out politically. Al, before I let you go, just on a personal note, from where we sit right now, and given your sort of broad uh, range of experience with this issue, how hopeful are you that we'll see a free Cuba or even a freer Cuba than we do today? Yeah, and the question is, what will a free Cuba look like? I went uh, because I wanted to learn the experience as representing the United States in the first election that Ukraine ever had. That's after 72 years. They had 72 years of Soviet Union and Russian influence. And so I was there as an observer. I went all over the country. And the interesting thing is that more enlightened people like in in Kiev, the capital, uh, you know, they clearly wanted a change. They wanted to be more allied with the West. They thought that that was a better part of their future. Uh, when I went to the more rural areas in Ukraine, I would talk to people and who'd you vote for? There was a, a Marxist allied with Russia. And there was somebody who wasn't an ideal person. He had some reputation for corruption, but he wanted to be allied with the, uh, you know, West. And so people would vote, tell me they voted for the markers. And I said, well, you just had 72 years of this. Why don't you want to change? And they would look at me like with a stare saying, well, how am I going to eat? And what happens if I get sick? You know, after three or four generations of living under a communist regime, people have no clue how they can take care of themselves. And so the Cuba, uh, assuming we can move forward in a different mindset, uh, Cubans have to learn what freedom means. And it isn't just being able to express your point of view without fear or repercussion. It's understanding what capital investment is, rebuilding an infrastructure, creating work opportunities, voting. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the first voting Cuba, uh, quite a few Marxists get in office because mm-hmm. that's the only rhetoric three generations have ever known. So, Getting rid 
of the current regime in Cuba is a big deal, just so you can stop repression and murder and all the things that take place. What a new Cuba could look like, it's going to take a while. Al, it's such a pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you so much for doing this. Good to be with you, Ron. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. There are a number of ways you can help support this work and our mission. You can donate, which helps support the huge team and the effort that goes into every single Politicology episode on the main feed. Or you can join Politicology Plus and gain access to hours of exclusive content to help you think more like a political strategist and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can share this episode or one of your favorites with friends, family, or colleagues. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth, and this helps us reach more people. And you can rate five stars in Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover the show organically. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.